everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Today is the first of a series of podcasts that I recorded at CNU 22 in Buffalo. This one is with Lynn Richards, the incoming CEO president of CNU. It was really exciting to interview her. There's a bunch of other great ones coming up. I just wanted to let you know that I've got those in the can and we'll be rolling them out here over the coming weeks. We've also got some membership stuff that we're planning on rolling out too along with this. I just want to take a moment here and remind you that Strong Towns is a membership-driven organization. If you haven't taken the time yet to go over and join, please do. Even just at a regular member, which is $25 a year, you're helping us pay for this podcast and the other stuff that we do at Strong Towns. It's really critical to us, really important to us that if you're a listener, you enjoy what we do, you appreciate the effort we put in here. You go over and sign up and become a member and, and help us continue to deliver this content to you on a weekly basis. Thanks, everybody, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I am in Buffalo at Congress for the New Urbanism, edition 22, and I have the distinct pleasure of being able to do an interview with the new president CEO, or the incoming president CEO, Lynn Richards. Lynn, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you, Chuck, so much for having me. It's fantastic. When we heard that you were going to be the new president CEO, I wrote a little thing kind of contrasting you and your selection process and, and what that meant with a different organization that we don't have to talk about. But the gist of my analysis of, of yours was that I'm just really excited because of your background and because of, you know, what, what I think having you in this position signifies. I know there's a lot of people out there who don't know who you are. So maybe we should just start this conversation by you know, you've got background with the EPA, Office of Sustainability. Why don't you go through a little bit just the things that you've been doing that have kind of led up to this? Well, okay. Usually when people ask me, where did you do your planning school? You know, were you trained as a planner? I generally answer that I trained as a Sovietologist. A Soviet? What, what exactly is that? <laughs> so I lived and worked in the former Soviet republics wow. from 1988 to 1995. Okay. I helped form the Central Asian Sustainable Development Information Network. So my job there was to work and build the capacity of environmental NGOs okay. working in the 15 republics. And in 92, I moved from Moscow down to Almaty, Kazakhstan. And so then I focused just on Central Asia. Wow. So you were there in the whole disillusion and the mm -hmm. that must have been an incredible life experience. It was a moment in time. Do it you speak a, Russian? Uh, da, Kanyeshna. I have two dogs named Sabaka and Koshka. <laughs> so Sabaka, for those listening, means dog. I don't know. I can't remember what Koshka, Koshka is. Koshka is cat. <laughs> I actually have a dog named Cat. My wife uh, had a year of Russian. So we have fun, you know, naming our dog Cat. My son has a snow leopard that we've named uh, Lapichka, which oh, is okay. Big Paw. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have to look at, I mean, I know this is like a vast diversion, but you sent us here. Um, <laughs> you've got to look at like what's going on today with Russia and the whole kind of evolution mm -hmm. of that country in a, a much different way than a lot of Americans do. Yes, there's absolute political unrest. But what I find more interesting, what's 
happening, and it's just not in Russia. It's in what I would call these second world countries where you had economies that were repressed. And as they begin to gather strength, you see these countries in some ways adopting the American style of development where you see the kind of exodus from the inner cities, which are compact, mixed use, great transit to the outlining suburbs, which then become car dependent. You see traffic increase. You see the transit systems really decline, both in terms of operation, costs increase, ridership. And so all of that was going on as, as I was leaving, and it was quite disturbing. And so different people during this transition time have asked, what was your aha moment? And yeah. for me, that that was it. So in, in 95, I had been immersed in, the, in a range of environmental and sustainable development issues, and I saw the decline of Almaty, Kazakhstan, which I think is beautifully laid out. I mean, it's certainly a diamond in the rough, but there was all of this exodus from the city, the increase in dachas, this kind of low-density dispersed development that was occurring. And when I came back to the U.S., that was when I started focusing specifically on the built environment. Having been in that experience, is it kind of like their turn now? I mean, is it their version of Americanization? Is this globalization kind of us exporting an American way of life? Well, it depends if you think that American way of life is something that should be exported in the way that it is. You right. say it's their turn now. Is it their but, turn? But I mean, I'm wondering if socially, like, that's how they look at it. Okay. If that's the point that you're making, right. I think that is. That is their definition of success. And what I feel is so important about some of the work that the CNU is doing, mm-hmm. and not just not the CNU, the movement in general, is reframing what success means, reframing what the American dream means. The American dream now increasingly means being able to have a place, being anchored to a place with strong social connections, right, of having friends and family, of being able to bike, walk, take transit, drive, having a choice of where and how to live. And it becomes your choice. It's empowering yourself as an individual. And I think as a movement, we are being successful in that reframing, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. I was in Ireland a few years before the housing crisis, and it was fascinating to me to see the way they had also embraced the American pattern of development on the edges of their communities. And of course, they don't have the economy that we have, mm-hmm. kind of the, the slop in their economy, you know, the ability to cover up mistakes the way we do. And so it ended really tragically for them really, really quickly. I wonder if parts of Asia, which I've never been to. I've never been there either. So now we're, now we're skating on thin ice. But- never been to Ireland. I've never been to Ireland. I, I've been to 50 countries and they're all, you know, Kazakhstan, Estonia, yeah, yeah. Lithuania, yeah. Bulgaria, you know. <laughs> right. I just wonder if those countries, the Kazakhstans and the Bulgarias. More if, the second world, yeah. If the financial kind Central of tenuousness Europe. of that development pattern kind of manifests more quickly there as Americans – And I'm not claiming to have any great knowledge on this part of the world. But when I look at it, I think of an even greater maybe disparity of income or wealth compared to what we have here. I don't know if that's true or not, but I wonder if that's part of the dynamic that you're describing as those economies kind of opened up and changed, if there was a certain – essentially what we experienced here in the 40s and 50s and 60s, which is the people who had affluence and the capacities fled – 
to other parts. Well, so you make an assumption there that people who had affluence fled. I would argue that it wasn't that the, it was folks who had affluence, but it was rather federal policies right. that really didn't force but facilitated mm-hmm. the – and that there was some social play certainly within that. But you're a GI. You were returning from the war. You weren't able to use your federal subsidy to buy a house, an existing house in an existing neighborhood. It had to be a new house, right? right. You have the whole investment in the interstate system. Right. So when you look at the range of federal policies, which all had their origins in promoting a you know social good, there were no Nobody was intending to go out and destroy our inner cities, but that was the unintended consequence. And that's a lot of what the CNU does now, which is to identify the barriers to making great places and try to address those systematically. Now, you spent many years at the EPA. Describe kind of the work you did there, what your experience there, and how that kind of informs where you approach here. Because I tend to agree with you that I think a lot of the experience we've had here in the U.S., if not driven by government policy, certainly federal government policy facilitated, facilitated a lot of it. I mean, we as voters maybe expressed a desire and they're like, yep, we can do that. And then some. So, you know, kind of inside the beast. Yeah, so I worked for EPA Smart Growth Program for 14 years, so from 2000 until this past April. You didn't work with Lee Sobel, did you? I did work with oh, Lee Sobel. I'm so sorry about that. I hey, know. I- come on. Come on. <laughs> We do have an audience here of which, you know, we have some members that we've allowed in. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so I worked for 14 years. The office is known by several names, the Development Community Environment Division, the Office of Sustainable Communities, the Urban Economic Development Division. I mean, again, but through the course and the arc of the organization, it was always called a EPA Smart Growth Program. And I held a, a number of different positions there from policy director to acting director. What I found so compelling about our work in the federal agency, which was for so many years, it was the only federal agency that was engaging on issues around the built and natural environment. EPA's mission is to protect human health and the environment and where and how development occurs dramatically can impact our nation's air, water, and land resources. So the work that we were doing was to identify those federal regulations and standards that were impeding, again, the building of great places. That perspective is incredibly helpful to me now, as now the head of CNU, as we talk about where to engage, where is this organization going to make the greatest impact? Because we're all aiming for the same thing. We want to create more places that people love. We want to create more great places. And everybody plays a role in achieving that outcome. And so at this juncture, CNU is determining, is really stepping back with me coming on. We have a new chairman of the board, Doug Farr, and we're thinking really strategically about where can we make the greatest impact? How can we leverage the great work that our members are doing? How can we leverage the great work that the founders have done, that our chapters are doing, and where and how can we make the greatest impact? And my federal experience has been, in my opinion, invaluable in helping to frame that conversation because I know how to work through the the federal beast, the federal monster. Those are some heady questions. Mm-hmm. I don't expect you to have answers to them. I mean, I think there's a lot there to get into. But do you have a sense of where that conversation 
is going to take this organization over the next few years. We hear Andres last year talk about pink codes and softening up regulation. And then we also see, you know, other things kind of from the other perspective that maybe we need, you know, not necessarily softer regulations, but different regulations. What is that track that you see CNU going down in terms of those big questions? I know you don't have the specific answers, but the general direction. The general direction is, and I think this as a movement, this is where we're going, that we need to step away from the semantics that perhaps have tripped us up. Is mm-hmm. this a smart growth development? Is this a new urbanist development? Is this sustainable urbanism? Right. And, and step back from that and agree on those areas in which we all agree that we want a walkable, livable place. Right. And how can we, together and individually, get to that point where we're leveraging each other's efforts, where we're partnering strategically in ways to help us create more walkable, livable places? Places where people can have a choice of where and how they want to live, where and how they want to move from point A to point B, where and how they want to work, play, and shop. So that, I think, as an organization, we are stepping back to assess kind of the broader movement and how can we create some of these partnerships? How can we determine where is our niche? And our niche is our amazing members. We have 2,600 members, and it's growing. And so I'm hoping, you know, a year from now that we can uh, report out a a big income increase. But when you think about who is doing the best work, the greatest minds in the United States on creating places that people love, they're all members of CNU. They're yeah. all new urbanists. Yeah. At EPA, who did we hire? We hired CNU members. We do the most amazing work and we understand the nuances, not only between how to create a complete street, but how do you create a complete street that is truly beautiful, that is Absolutely. a great street. Yeah. As the new head of CNU, I want to leverage our members in a way that enables them to go out and do even better work that kind of frees them up. And how can we, as I like to say, level the playing field? I heard Andres Dwani years ago, and this was probably the thing that hooked me as a new urbanist, say that, you know, there is no answer. There's only complexity and there's only more questions. You know, every time we kind of dig into things and the complete street thing is one of those policies that frustrate me because it's grounded in the obvious problem that we have with our streets being just disastrous for someone not in an automobile. And so there's a logical kind of policy response that we see now coming at the federal level and getting filtered down to the states and, you know, ultimately local codes and ordinances. But you can fix the street and have a sidewalk. And if you don't have street trees and you don't have street life and you don't have the buildings that accompany it and you don't have, you've not really moved the bar all that much. Is this the complexity that we need to, you know, I feel like that's what we're all about here. Yes, exactly. I mean, think of it like a recipe book. You know how to make a cake. You need flour and sugar and baking powder and a little bit of salt. And you can put those ingredients together in a way that produces a eh, cake. And you can put those same ingredients together and put it together in a way that just brings your mouth on fire. Yeah. So that's essentially what we're talking about here, that it's just not about creating 
creating great streets. It's about creating great places. And we know what the recipe is, but some people, you know, maybe add a little bit too much flour or a little bit too much sugar. And what I find, like you were saying, that, that new urbanists really dive into the details of the nuance, how to tweak that recipe to really have these places pop. At what point did you look at John Norquist retiring and say, well, I would like that job. I mean, how, how, how did that, how did that come about in your mind? Cause I mean, obviously you have an enthusiasm for this and it's infectious, but how did you look at that and say, you know, I want to go in with that and try to herd those cats and be part of that. <laughs> It's not as straightforward as you would think. So last year, 2012 and 13, I was a Loeb Fellow at Harvard University in the Graduate School of Design. And I had been working on issues of suburban retrofit. So I invited Ellen Dunham Jones and Dan Sloan up to Harvard so we could have a, a suburban retrofit roundtable. And Ellen said this offhand comment to me as we were talking about what I should do after the Loeb Fellowship. She goes, you should consider running CNU. And I wrote it in my book, and it's right here. And I was like, question mark, question mark. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what? Huh? I finished up the fellowship, and I came back to Washington, and somebody else had mentioned it to me. And I was like, you know, Ellen mentioned that. So mm -hmm. I picked up the phone, and I called Ellen, and I said, uh, so what is this? Like, wh what's going on? And she was like, oh, well, Lynn, I've been meaning to call you. John Norquist is retiring, and that was the first time that I heard it when Ellen was telling me, and we'd like to invite you to apply. So it was a little bit more both me coming to the realization that this was something that I wanted to do and the board asking me. To be clear, the board asked a lot of people. Sure. So it wasn't as though they, they thought that I was particularly special. But No, I think they did. It was interesting to me because I kind of watching this process – not on the board, not involved in it, but seeing things and hearing from people. It was interesting because it seemed to me like the idea was, I don't want to say unorthodox, because I don't think you're an unorthodox pick in the sense that you're, you know, like this but I'm is an crazy, outsider. but you're an outsider. And I think there was a very much intention to say, we don't necessarily want to just continue in the mold we're in. We want to start thinking a little more broadly and differently. Is that a fair assessment of the way you experienced it? Yeah, I, I think so. I wasn't clearly uh, involved in the whole process. I know that the board was very deliberate and mindful that mm -hmm. they talked to a wide number of people about what the characteristics that the new leader should have, even before they put together the announcement. You know, you went through the first round of, of interviews and then, then you went with the board. So I think it was in that whole process, which I don't know how long it took. I know from when the announcement was posted to when it was selected was probably about four or five months, but I think it was much longer, that they went through an internal process thinking about what, what they needed. While I may be an outsider to some, you know, I have been attending, I think this is my sixth or seventh Congress. Okay. I certainly have worked with and know a lot of new urbanists. Some of them are, are some of my favorite people, Lee Sobel. And... Um, <laughs> But more than that, what I find is it's almost a strength. You know, I, I've got my own baggage with EPA. I have no baggage with members of the board. I right. have no baggage with so many of the leaders here. And it's as though everybody gets a fresh start. Right. And just in the three months that I've been engaging with the organization, that has proven to be a powerful tool. 
Like, yeah, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so maybe irked at each other for something that happened two or three years ago, but, right. but I'm not. I think you're a great person, right. and how can we work together? So I think it's been a real asset. That's wonderful. The other thing that I wanted to point out, too, is that I have been absolutely amazed at how gracious and welcoming everyone has been. Not only the board, that goes without saying, they have been incredibly helpful, incredibly supportive, incredibly welcoming, but also so many members of the organization. I've been pinged on Facebook and Twitter and on LinkedIn. Any way that people could get a hold of me have sent waves of congratulations and we're rooting for you and how can I help? It has been amazing, which shows to me, frankly, the heart of the movement. I've had a similar experience in the sense that I showed up here not wanting to be a new urbanist. I mean, I come from a small town. Urbanism was like this esoteric concept to me. Once you're here and once you start meeting people, if you have something to contribute or if you have a care or a passion, the thing that I found about this place is that they really drag you in. They really bring you in and ask you to be part of it and kind of push you to do more. I go back to when Victor Dover ran the board. I knew who Victor was. I had no clue Victor knew who I was. And he would hunt me it's down like everyone and knows say, who you are. no, no, certainly not <laughs> back then. He hunted me down and said, we need you doing more. I want to just encourage you to keep going. Here's the head of the organization, you know, looking at someone who's been around for 12 months, 18 months saying, what can I do to help you do more? And that's the thing that's always been kind of intoxicating to me about this place is how it embraces ideas and people who want to and empowers them to move to just like, let's try it. One of our board members constantly says that CNU is an incubator of ideas. And I think that's right. And the organization absolutely needs to foster, encourage, empower the members to continually think about what's next? What's the new innovation? How can we do more of this? And unless we are able to create that type of environment, we're going to get stale. Right. And so I see it as my role as to really, again, to support our members, to support the technical work that we're doing, think about emerging trends, how can we better position ourselves. But the other important piece that we do, and it goes back to the heart of the organization, is that, frankly, I think we inspire and empower others to act. Yeah. That's a core piece of what we do. I was talking to Victor Dover since we mentioned him a little bit yeah. a few months ago, and he says, I'm the... I'm the hardest working man in show business. He's always out talking to people. And I think that we need to celebrate and empower and do more of that. So I want to ask you, there's a debate that has been going on here for years about membership. I don't expect you to have an answer for this or even an opinion on this. But there's one kind of group that says, you know, we need to have a ton of members. We need to have, if we've got 2,600 now, we need to have 10,000 members. There's another group that says the great thing about new urbanism is that it continues to grow and it continues to add members, but the focus is less on adding members and more on adding skills and understanding and almost not getting too big too quick because there's a maturing process intellectually that goes along with it. And I don't know where I fall on that spectrum because I can see the advantages of both. I mean, we certainly have an evangelical side to what we do here that really is about converting the unconverted, right? But then there's also, I've seen organizations that become focused on growing the number of members they have that kind of lose the intellectual edge. I don't know if you have a sense of that debate or that conversation 
I uh, would like to weigh in on it or not, but I'm kind of throwing it over to you saying, no. hey, where would you fall in that kind of thing? Where would you lean? That's a great question. I've actually given that a lot of thought. I don't think it's an either or. Anytime an organization that's as small and nimble as CNU does anything, there's a calculus. So it's going to cost us X. And by cost, it's either going to be in staff resources or in financial resources or in member resources. So it's going to cost us something to do a big membership push. What impact is that going to get us? Is that the best way to spend those resources? So that's the way that I'm framing it because you just don't go from 2,600 members to 10,000 without a significant effort. And is that the best way for us to spend our effort? So I would argue that as an organization, we need to bring in more people to the table. Where's the bike ped community? Right. As a, for example, I, I own a car, but I also own four bikes. Biking is, is my primary way of getting from point A to point B. My tandem's the family station wagon. So where's the bike ped community? Where are the community development corporations, as a, for example? Where are the public health folks? All of these constituents and a dozen more that I haven't even mentioned all have a vested interest in creating great places. What I think we need to do is to reach out and make our table bigger. And this goes to the the cost-benefit analysis. By bringing in more people, by bringing in the bike ped people, we can leverage the great work that they've already done. And we can, again, get more stuff built on the ground better, faster, more places. So if we think about it, this is research that Lee Sobel has done since he's oh, here. You we're, know. We're Anything Lee it. does is first class. But in 2008, about a million homes were built. And when you look at those numbers, you know, the research that Lee did is anywhere from, say, 2 to 3% of that would be characterized as kind of a new urbanist or smart growth development. Let's say that Lee's wrong. Right. Let's double that number. Right. And let's say that it was 10%. We're still right? talking about a, a tiny fraction a of the A tiny fraction. Survey and survey after survey has has shown that increasingly 30 to 50 percent of the U.S. population wants to live in a walkable urban place, yet the market is only responding to a mere fraction of that. So by partnering with the bike ped people, by partnering with the community development corporation folks, with the public health folks, we can enable more great places to be built to meet that demand and to grow that demand, frankly. CNU, and I think you said this to a degree, I think the strength of this organization is the intellectual heft that's here, the members, the things that they bring to the table. What are some of the things, maybe like one or two, that you look at and say, you know, I would maybe take that in a little bit different direction, or here's something that I want to enhance and improve upon, or, you know, maybe do a little bit differently? Is that a fair question? I'm not asking you to throw any elbows or throw anyone under the bus. And, you know, you can say, I want to bring in more partners. That's a happy thing. But, <laughs> you know, there's nobody here without an opinion on what CNU can do better. <laughs> you know, the bulk of our technical work is very democratic. It comes from our members. The members get together, you know, a group of volunteers and they're like, oh, this is what we want to work on. And as it goes through a process, it becomes an initiative. And I'm not going to say all of the initiatives, but but a lot of them really need a finer focus of what is that outcome? What is that one thing or those two or three things that we are trying to change? And I think there's fair agreement on the members and, and the 
board, certainly, that we need to have that kind of close look. But in addition, I think that there's a role for CNU, the role of staff, and I think that this is my role to look at where there are emerging issues and how we might be able to influence it. So for example, you know, I worked at EPA. One of the issues that I worked on was on stormwater. And for the last several years, I was engaged in working on the national stormwater rulemaking with certainly and, and leverage CNU in, in a couple of cases for a whole wide range of reasons. It's likely that the stormwater rule will not make it out of EPA, but instead EPA will issue guidance on the best way to, you know, for municipalities to manage their stormwater. CNU absolutely needs to be part of that guidance writing process. Sure. It's an internal, internal to the federal government process, but we can influence it to say, yeah, you're going to say A, B, and C, but can you also consider X, Y, and Z? And here we'll provide you that. So that while the initiatives represent a more organic thought process out of the members, which is absolutely, I don't want to mess with that at all because, you know, in most cases, there are people far smarter than I am working sure. on these issues. I also think that we need to have the flexibility to identify other areas in which to work. Okay. I know we had a couple of people just walk in. We're actually to the point here where I'm going to open it up to some questions. So if you've got a question, I'm going to have you come up here and say it in the mic. Nate Hood gave me one before he abruptly walked out. Nate Hood, our next gen chair this year. I don't know if you got a chance to meet Nate or not, but he's a cool guy. He's, he's been of, one of the people who has reached out has to Has he me. really? Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He does uh, some writing with us at Strong Towns, and we kind of conned him into being the next-gen chair this year, so he's been working really hard. He invited me to the kickball game on Saturday. Excellent. Are you going to come? Uh, assuming I don't have somewhere else to be. Okay. Because I'm the manager of one of the teams. And if you're on my team, that would be great. If you're not... Uh, well, I was going to be may... on Aaron Napersack's team and oh, yeah. Aaron has left. So I'll be on your team. Great. Because I would hate to have to hurt you, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a competitive guy. No. Um, here's Nate's question. From lean urbanism to highway to boulevards, to other initiatives, is there a CNU project that interests you the most? Is there something that CNU has, one of the initiatives that you look at and say, that's kind of right up my alley? Wow. You know, in some ways, to be perfectly honest, and I'm not just saying that. It's fine. I, I'm being asked to choose my favorite child. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, I, it feels like a cliche answer, but I'm really excited about the work that Aaron Christensen is doing on the Urbanism 2030. How do you get those districts to work? I'm really fascinated by the health districts work. I think that there's Laura Heary and that group has done a lot of good work. I was talking with Charles Green from the CDC on this on Monday, and I think there's a lot more work that we can be doing on that. It feels like a whole untapped area. The Live Work Walk, where you're essentially fussing with that 25% to 35% Right. Allocation for retail uh, using FHA money. There's a lot of really good work. The highways to boulevards. I love engaging on transportation issues. So it's like asking a, you know, my favorite child. It's good. Yeah. The, in fact, I've gotten some feedback that I'm perhaps too involved in the initiatives because I'm having so much fun with it. Oh, so, okay. well, that's, you know, if that's the feedback, I think that's pretty good at this juncture. I totally agree. Anybody have something they want to ask, Lynn? 
Well, if you step up, I want to make sure I get you in the mic. Absolutely. So give us your name and uh, give us your question. Yeah. Hi, Nate Newman. I'm a planner with the city of Buffalo and a member of the local organizing committee. So first of all, welcome to Buffalo. It's wonderful to have you guys here. And of course, it's wonderful to have seeing you here. We've been looking forward to this for years. Well, thank you so much. You guys have done an amazing job organizing this. And at our board meeting, we were just making three chairs for Buffalo all around. So you guys have done a great job. Thank you. Awesome. Seeing you has been a big influence on Buffalo, even if it hasn't always gotten the direct accolades for that. But I think CNU has really, really affected the community's thinking here, especially the grassroots community. And I think that's now trickling down or up, I should say, into our public officials' thinking, which is now adopting so many of these principles. And there's so many that... Uh, you guys are start. close to adopting a city-based, form-based code, aren't yes, you? Yes, we are. It'll be a city-wide, form-based code. And we are super excited about it because we've worked on it for four years. And it's uh, really based on the transect and acknowledging like a place-based development strategy. So that kind of leads me to my question, actually. CNU has been very influential in many regards, especially you know the, the transportation reform, highways to boulevards, and so forth. But I was wondering regarding zoning, because next to transportation, and maybe we could even argue zoning is the most, I think, influential on land use and development and, and the effects that that have and how we live. And there's few things that affect our built environment more than zoning, other than maybe transportation. So I was wondering what direction does CNU want to take in terms of zoning? In other words, with transportation, CNU has a very firm series of principles and positions, mm-hmm, uh, especially mm-hmm. highways to boulevards. How about zoning? How do you see mm-hmm, CNU addressing mm-hmm. zoning in the future? That's a great question because I would expand it beyond zoning to local land development regulations in general. You have not only zoning, you have your codes and ordinances, your subdivision regulations, your, you know, street design guidelines, your design guidelines for, you know, retail, you know, all of it, the local land development regulations. And so one idea that I have been toying with is creating an impact center around codes, code reform. So certainly we have our partner organizations the Form-Based Code Institute, the new urbanists have started Smart Code, but there are a number of different ways that a municipality can revise their land development regulations to enable and essentially foster and prosper better development. So creating an impact center that looks at the wide range of those tools. Now, I'm not suggesting anything new, quite frankly. This information technically already exists in different places. So what would a code reform center really look like? Yeah, I don't know. And that goes to what what I was saying to Chuck earlier, that for every investment and time and energy we make, we have to be very clear on what the outcome and the impact is. There's 75,000 units of local government in the United States. And it's great to hear that we're able to make an impact in Buffalo, but it leads me to think, where can we make the greatest impacts? You mentioned highways to boulevards. There's 12 cities, 12 municipalities, Scott Bernstein says, of CNT, where that's occurring. Is that the best use of our time and effort? I don't know. I'm just asking questions now. Is it better to think about taking a complete street, for example? And I was talking with our next speaker about this and coming up with design guidelines of how to – it's just not a complete street it's a great street. It's a beautiful street. Are we going to get greater impact by engaging in that area? So I don't have any answers to your question. I just have more questions, but I wanted to give you a sense of how we're thinking about it. You want to have a follow-up. 
Yeah, I'll let you – real quick quick highlight to that. I think you have a really good point. CNU is focused on transportation reform, highways to Boulevard. But as with any major infrastructure project, that's super expensive. And we were really big on it in Buffalo for the really the past 10 years, taking a look at our expressways, how they cut off our waterfront, how they ruined our Olmsteady and parkways. But in each and every scenario, no matter what we do, it's incredibly expensive. Yet, zoning, having a citywide form-based code, eliminating minimum parking requirements, having public work standards, costs almost nothing in comparison and literally has the ability to be transformative to the city. So I just wanted to highlight that in particular. Oh, and he said it better than I did. Having an AICP myself, there's a certain, you know, you can save the world through zoning. It's an important it's one, tool. It's, it's, in it's one, one tool. important tool. It's yeah. one tool, yeah. The speaker said it doesn't cost anything. I think it does. I think it costs a lot of political will. And a lot of politicians yeah. are willing to step up and, and to make that. And so to some extent, I think a lot of what we're talking about is building the political capacity. I would point. almost say to moving public officials from a place of fear and uncertainty to a place of empowerment. How do we enable their agency? So when I was at Harvard, I was able to study under Marshall Gantz, who ran a lot of social movements in the United States. And, and not that I think that the built and natural environment is a social movement, but I think a lot of the characteristics are the same, that we need to come up with ways of talking and engaging that empowers people, that enables their agency, that moves them from a place of fear to a place of, of action. Go ahead. We got another question. Hi, this is Darren Dinsmore. And I just wanted to ask Lynn about CNU as an international organization. And I guess I'm reminded of when CNU was back in Toronto, I think 16 or 18 years ago or something like that. And it was a young and growing organization. And now you're, we're in a border town or border city. And there's a lot of our Canadian friends here. I What's hear your right? Canadian accent coming hey, through. Hose- hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and just to plug the uh, NHL Stanley Cup playoffs are scheduled for uh, the next uh, seven days. So uh, it might be competing with the uh, conference while we're here. <laughs> I mentioned a little bit earlier in our talk that I think that there is a definite role for CNU to play internationally. But I think we need to be cognizant of where we want to engage. A lot of our codes and ordinances are based in the U.S. rule of law, and a lot of our members have that experience. So if we want to try to engage internationally, we need to sort out and be clear where and how are we going to engage. And can we make an impact? I think that there's a lot that we can export, particularly in China, and so many of our members are, are doing work there, also in Dubai and in these other areas. We just need to be clear on how, as an organization, not the movement, what impact can we make? I've got a couple of questions for you from Twitter. Huntington Stormwater, which I think is our friend Kit in Huntington. Oh, I thought it was somebody else entirely. It's no, West Virginia, no. right? Huntington, West Virginia. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I thought yep. it was my good friend, Sherry What's Wilkins? Kit's last name? And okay. Kit Anderson, great guy, worked with the city, now is with the university there, brought us out for a, a nice chat. I, I loved Huntington. He, here's his question. How will CNU address and instill their philosophy in smaller, economically disadvantaged cities? That's a great question. I think so, too. That, that's a great question. And we were talking with some members from Northeastern or Northwestern, excuse me if I'm getting it wrong, Arkansas. But Fayetteville. Yeah, yeah, that's in Northeastern. Northwestern. We were out there last year. What a fantastic place with a bunch of engaged people. And I met with the economic development director just in the hallway a few minutes ago. And he says, we're interested in investing in place 
not for a lot of the ideals that we talk about here, but as an economic development strategy. And I think that's spot on. So when we talk about the communities such as Buffalo, Detroit, for example, some of these smaller towns that perhaps don't have quite the same history and the bones, what are their assets? What can they leverage? For example, I was in Topeka, Kansas a couple of years ago, and they had a gorgeous downtown, and they were using all of their infrastructure dollars on, you know, essentially building outside of town. And so I suggested, you know, why don't you just, you have a stormwater issue, you're spending stormwater dollars, why don't you just, as a first step, just green the street? You've got to spend this money anyway, this is in the same shoe, or said, begin to invest in place in a way that begins to revitalize your downtown. And for them, that, that was a whole new way of looking at it. And I think it's those types of solutions that we can help bring to these more economically distressed areas. That sounds like a, you know, a cure-all because it's so more nuanced than that. It's it's hard. (laughs) I mean, it's the whole thing that Strong Towns is about. The economics of place is overwhelming. And for a lot of these small towns, they're not only insolvent, they're like going bankrupt right now? It's a much more complicated question than my somewhat simplistic answer. But I do think that that is, you know, the type of ideas and information tools and, and frankly, the, the great work that our members do that, mm-hmm. that we can help in that area. Mm-hmm. There was a question from Chris Lazaro on Twitter. I think you've kind of addressed, but maybe I'll give you a chance to just like, you know, 30 second hit this one out of the park again. Despite endless research pointing out the pros of urbanism, sprawl remains entrenched in city policy. What will you do to change this? Well, there's nothing that I can do to change city policy. <laughs> really? I, I am- <laughs> I'm the, I'm the head of a, of, of a nonprofit organization. But what we can do, and it gets to that kind of third pillar of CNU's work, a lot of what we do is to try to inspire and motivate other people to do this kind of work. And I think that is what CNU can do. We can enable others to act. We can get other people to do our work. We can help break down their fear barriers. You know, we're talking about setting up a master speakers bureau as a for example, so we can get more CNU members out on the road talking, doing these presentations, you know, setting up road tours. How can we begin to infect everyone with the excitement about place? And place can happen whether you're living in a small rural town, in a suburban area, or in a downtown area. And I think we need to be clear about that as well, that new urbanism isn't just about revitalizing cities. It's about creating a sense of place. It's about creating places people love. Lynn Richards, Incoming president, CEO, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're so busy, but thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Russian for thank you. Spasibo, is that? Spasibo. 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 Thank you very much, Chuck. Thank you. And everybody out there, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.
The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. John Norquist has to have been one of the funniest mayors that ever existed. At first you might not be able to tell that John has a really wry sense of humor because he has, his delivery is, um, it comes, it comes as a surprise. All the times where he walks out of the office and comes up behind me at my desk with one of his corny jokes that, a punchline that <laughs> they're really funny and make no sense, but it, those are really the best.